Like if you just know you're going to be busy, it's so much easier to plan both from a food standpoint and a team member standpoint, how many people you're going to need, when you're going to need them. And in terms of just like imperative, it's, it's, it's kind of like, there's a lot of analogies between sports and the restaurant space. And it's a lot like being on a winning sports team with a winning team culture, where like everyone at, at practice is focused. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. I have a soft spot for entrepreneurs. Loyal listeners of the Sidcast probably know that already. The very first episode of the Sidcast last year was with Howard Anderson, the quintessential entrepreneur, and an episode that's still one of the most popular and downloaded in the entire series. I also spoke, of course, to Eric Fossum, the legendary inventor who revolutionized the iPhone. That conversation was in September of last year. Jessica Wolf, the modern branding entrepreneur, Grace Kelly, the jazz singer, who is really entrepreneurially creating a music career, Michelle Ali, who started the cartoon school and whose life reads like a textbook on entrepreneurship and a whole bunch of others. So when I heard about Oliver Kramer, who along with his brother Leo created the chain Dos Toros Taqueria, I thought, well, this is right up the Sidcast Alley. An entrepreneurial story, a guy who's really into food and tacos of that, and a story of a company building and growing and fighting in the era of COVID. It really did sound like a perfect fit for the Sidcast. And I got in touch with Oliver. And so he's a young entrepreneur, created Dos Toros, which is a fast, casual Mexican taqueria concept, over 20 locations, mostly in New York. They're in Chicago also. They started in 2009 in this kind of tiny little place. And Oliver and I talk about that, a truly hole-in-the-wall place in Union Square. And it just really took off. They cook their recipes from scratch. And both brothers, Leo and Oliver Kramer, are co-founders and co-CEOs, which is kind of interesting when two siblings are starting a company. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, they didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. They didn't grow up saying, well, you could be a fireman, but I'm going to be an entrepreneur. It just kind of worked out that way. Leo was a former bass player. He was in a rock band called Third Eye Blind. Truth is, I never heard of it, but apparently a lot of people did. And Oliver was actually a student at Wash U in St. Louis and started to graduated and looked around for some stuff to do. And they decided, uh, let's try this. And they grew up with tacos of a certain type in Berkeley in California and wanted to bring that to the East Coast and to New York in particular. Now, I want to say something about tacos. Growing up in Canada, I have to say that tacos were not a particularly well-known delicacy. Poutine, maybe, but not tacos. A few years ago, we were visiting University of Texas at Austin. What a great place that is. And I had to sample the local fare. And Texans, like Californians, take their tacos very, very seriously. And of course, it all comes from Mexico and other parts of Latin America, for that matter. But my Austin tacos were really fantastic. I made it a point of searching and finding tacos wherever I could. And actually, I could have stayed a much longer time and I still wouldn't have gotten through all of the amazing taco places. I've actually tried to make tacos at home, kind of a bit embarrassing and maybe a little disrespectful to the god of tacos, seeing as I live in New England, but I did give it a try. And I'm going to say they were good. I don't think anyone's going to write me up in Zagat or Michelin, but I think they were good. But it's something anyone can try, anyone can do. But the story really today is about a couple of young brothers that created a kind of a cool business. And it's just one that I found out about and I thought, this is great. And I actually, I wanted to go sample the food before I uh, talked to Oliver, just to be more knowledgeable, if you know what I mean. But in the midst of COVID, I didn't go to New York and I didn't do that. So 
that's on the list, on the long to-do list of things to do when the world hopefully soon enough turns back to normal. So let's talk to Oliver Kramer, an entrepreneur, a taco guru from California, a guy that has a pretty interesting story you probably didn't know about. And now you will. Enjoy. Welcome back to the SITCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Oliver Kramer. Hey, Oliver. Hey, Sid. How's it going? Thank you for having me today. It's great to have you on. And you're in Berkeley now, California, and that's where you grew up? Correct. Born and raised here in the Bay Area. Technically, I was born in Oakland, then since moved to Berkeley. And I have spent just about the last 11 years, though, uh, living in New York City. So you're a taco guy, and you started this pretty successful company. Dos Toros Taqueria? Is that without any appropriate accent? Is that close enough? Dos Toros Taqueria. Taqueria, okay. Well, I'm Canadian, so that's as good as I can do. Why did you start this uh, restaurant in the first place? Why did you do this? Sure. Quite simply, my brother and I grew up eating what we believe to be the very best burritos, tacos, and quesadillas here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we just couldn't understand why such amazing foil-wrapped burritos weren't available outside of this area. And, you know, there's thousands of, of taquerias around here that are each excellent in their own right. But seemingly something is lost in translation when, I don't know if you're familiar with mission-style Mexican. It's kind of a, a type of Mexican food mm -hmm. and cuisine, and uh, that's the San Francisco mission is what it's referring to. And we traveled a lot as kids, and we'd, we'd visit family in New York and elsewhere, and we just could never find a great burrito and that even you know held a candle to the stuff we grew up with here in the bay so it kind of dawned on us that maybe why couldn't we get a great burrito maybe there wasn't a good reason and in fact we could do it so without getting too technical what's different about this style of taco or burrito to what you might get in texas or mexico for that matter i'm very glad you asked thank you so you know the devil's in the detail and hmm. a burrito is really it's just a series of you know 50 or even 100 very small decisions from what is the thickness of the tortilla that you use to the actual size, what is the diameter of the tortilla, whether you steam it or grill it or press it, whether there is cheese melted on it or if there's cheese sprinkled on it or if there's any cheese at all. And the signature mission-style burrito is just is the foil-wrapped. It's this kind of long, cylindrical kind of thing of beauty. And so the mission-style burrito and the way we do it is a steamed tortilla. We melt a slice of Monterey Jack cheese right onto the tortilla, which is very rare. And to do that, you... Corner wheat type of... Sorry about that. Yes, yeah, so for the burritos and quesadillas, it's flour, the wheat flour. Okay. And the tacos are 100% corn made from beautiful corn masa. Okay, keep going. So... And um, so the burrito, you have a tortilla steamer, which is a pretty unique piece of equipment. And you don't see a lot of them outside of the Bay Area. And so we, we steam the tortilla with the cheese on it. And melted cheese, I think, is a really important part of any good burrito or really Mexican food in general. And I think a lot of our competition and a lot of other burrito shops falter in that the cheese either isn't there or if it is, it's it's coming on, sprinkled on later on top of other cold items and it never actually melts, which is, I think, a travesty. And then we lay the beans on the cheese. Then we have a beautiful red rice. I think places that try to serve you like a steamed white rice on your burrito, like that's not authentically mission style. You get into trouble with authenticity when you're talking about Mexican food because there's so many different regions and variations and, and beautiful uh, different kinds of cuisine. And even the burrito itself is not necessarily from Mexico. It's Mexican food, but I, as I understand, scholars maintain that the burrito, it's the first burrito ever rolled was around the Mission District of San Francisco. And that's where the flour tortilla was invented because corn tortillas are, are the masa on a molecular level. It breaks apart if it gets too big. 
that's why you don't see like 13 inch corn tortillas and being, you know, Americans and wanting to have things that are big and, you know, we wanted the beans and the cheese and the tomatoes and the pro the chicken. We want everything in the thing. Mm-hmm. And so we, somebody was like, well, Hey, why don't we try rolling a tortilla out of wheat flour and the gluten in the flour allows it to keep its structural integrity. And so you can make much larger tortillas, which won't break. And then you can roll them with all these beautiful things inside and then create the burrito. So, you said the first ones were rolled in California, not Mexico? I I mean, I don't want to necessarily... I mean, that's a hard one because Mexico is a big place and lots of amazing food in a lot of areas, as you just said. So you can't be sure, but you think so. 100%. And specifically just the flour tortilla. Using wheat flour to roll tortillas was something that I think happened for the first time in the U.S. And I think for the first time in California. Yeah. You know, I was listening to someone on the radio the other day talking about the origins of pizza. And it did start in Naples, as many people who know pizza might say it did. But then it was it was really kind of low-class food, frankly. It was just for very poor people. And it really became popular in the U.S. with Italian immigrants from that region to New York, mm. which I think is really kind of interesting. So it makes me think about, well, you know, there were... There are, there were burritos, tacos, all sorts of things like that in Mexico, presumably. And maybe it was immigrants. I'm going to ask you now if that, if you think that's how it got there. It was immigrants that repopularized it or made it into something a little bit different, more of an American style thing. 100%. I mean, I think there's been a tons of really, really interesting variations and different kinds of Mexican food in, you know, even just different parts of New York based on where people immigrated from. And so I think that the Mexican population that has come to the U.S. over many, many, many years has brought unbelievable variations and in recipes and, and different kinds of Mexican food. And so I think in California, it was. So I don't claim to say that, you know, the burrito or Mexican food of, of mission style was invented in California, just that the flour tortilla was what allowed the burrito to literally take shape and to be I think it's really, I don't know if you ever studied this or thought about it, you've been too busy creating a business, but where food comes from is one of the most interesting things and how, for example, something like a taco, or what is it, or a burrito, it's folded, I don't want to say dough because that's going to be insulting for too many people, but it's some receptacle that you fold and then you put stuff in it. Well, you know, stuff like that exists all over the world. Pizza. In the Middle East, right, with that's done in lots of ways in China or in Asia more generally. The hot buns exist there in India. In the same kind of wavelength, just like yeah. I mean, a calzone is certainly right. The the calzone is folded in, and India, the naan bread and the roti. It's really kind of amazing that the same general category. You know, if there was a if somebody looked at this the way they look at human species, you know, Neanderthal and the modern human Homo sapiens, there'd be this tree of where these things maybe somebody did it. It'd be pretty interesting. And how it goes from place to place to me is really interesting. Totally. It's it's universal, this kind of this carb is holding and is the container for the protein, the vegetable, you know, whatever else it might be. Yeah. You know, given what I just said, it's maybe kind of obvious, but why do you think tacos are so popular? I mean, it seems like, at least in the U.S., they're way more popular around the country than ever before. And, you know, if you've been, if you, I guess California is a little bit like this, Texas certainly is, tacos have been around a long time, and burritos for that matter. But I don't think they've ever been this popular. It just seems to be something everybody cares about now. I mean, the taco, there's a lot to like about the taco. I think tacos have been more popular than burritos. Uh, and I think they're, the taco, it's small. You can have, you know, you can try many, several different kinds. It's the handheld nature of it. And, you know, it's kind of like a, I like to say all killer, no filler, you know, like it's just the tortilla, this thin tortilla holding, you know, usually 
some kind of beautifully cooked or prepared protein with like a little bit of sauce, maybe, maybe some guacamole, little hot sauce, and that's it. And I think burritos have potentially gotten a bad rap, no pun intended, because it's the beans and the rice and you think it's like, oh, they're just like stuffing this thing with the cheap stuff and I'm not even really like where you're trying to like you're searching through your burrito for, you know, the chicken or the guacamole. And so I think they've been bastardized a little bit in certain parts of the country. And but, you know, we love tacos. Don't get me wrong. We make absolutely gorgeous tacos. The corn we use is from a company called Macienda, which works with heirloom corn farmers in Oaxaca, Mexico. We actually made a really cool, we went down there and visited some of our farmers and made a cool video about it. And I don't want to shortchange our tacos for a second, but the burrito and specifically this, this you know, perfectly proportioned uh, with each recipe going into it, whether it be the beans or the rice or the hot sauce, all of which all of ours are homemade or the tomato salsa, or the guacamole, or our braised pork carnitas, like each one of these recipes is its own challenge. And because there's more recipes going into it, there's more opportunities, I think, to mess it up. But also, there's that opportunity for if you can nail each one of these components, and if you can portion them, place them into the burrito with real care and love, that you can create you know, real synergy that is so much more than each one of these recipes by itself. Are people eating more, ordering more burritos or tacos now? So at Dos Toros, we sell more burritos than tacos, certainly. And you know, it's confusing because it's called a taqueria, and I think that throws some people off. It's not a right. burrito-ria. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way. But the taqueria really is just kind of the, the umbrella that it covers you know, all of these different you know, kinds of items. But burritos much more than... Also, I think we are more differentiated on the burrito. I think before we ever even opened you know, in certain parts of New York or Brooklyn or the Bronx or all, you know, any of the various boroughs, like you can find pretty amazing tacos and like really authentic, really high quality tacos. But the burrito was seemingly more elusive. And so our reputation and our name has been built more on our burritos being, you know, I think head and shoulders above the competition. And, you know, there's a pretty large player in the space that I'm not going to name right now that I think, you know, over the last 20 years has done a lot of work, frankly, popularizing the burrito and teaching Americans, oh, this is actually something I really want, something I really enjoy, but not really doing it in the most authentically mission-style way and not really nailing it. And so we can then come in and we have, with a more considered, just sort of high-quality or a lot more high-quality product, and sort of show people what a burrito is actually. You know, now they know what a burrito is. Now we're, sh- we're then showing them what a burrito is supposed mm-hmm. to be like. So I have a couple more kind of almost geeky foodie type questions. I could do this all day. <laughs> That's so good. I actually, and I love the whole category. I love the creation of anything and food happens to be a pretty good anything. So when you go to a Dos Toros, you have all these various ingredients that you just described, the, whether it's a chicken or a meat or whatever it was, the, 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 the red Carnitas. rice. Carnitas. These things are not cooked the second somebody orders them. It's not a sit down kind of fine dining restaurant. Yes. So how do you keep it both hot and fresh at the same time? Totally. And you know, that's one of the biggest challenges and the way the assembly line style, it's not unique to Mexican at this point. Although I think the burrito and the taquerias of the mission were the origins of this sort of assembly line that you now see across all different types of, of cuisines and fast casual restaurants. And, you know, it's a delicate balance and, and obviously understanding your demand. And, you know, thankfully, demand is remarkably predictable. I think people outside of the industry don't realize the extent to which you can forecast, especially if you know, you know, what day of the week it is. What, is there a holiday coming up? Is it a holiday weekend? Right. If it's a Friday leading into a three-day weekend where like it's Labor Day or Memorial Day, like that Friday is going to be slower because people are taking off early. 
And you can use you know, algorithms and predictive tools to rattle, throttle back, excuse me, your prep and your cooking. And so, you know, at a certain, it's hard to get it exactly perfect. There, you know, there's definitely a method and a system for making sure you're not over prepping. And then at the same time, making sure that when the lunch rush or the, the dinner rush does come, that you're prepared and you've got enough product to serve. But, you know, it's really about taking care and using the tools that are available. So is there some type of technology that you have that others in the industry don't when you talk about algorithms? And because tech has become such a big deal in the fast casual industry. And I'm curious about, you know, if that's the case and how quick these things disseminate from one restaurant group to another. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone's got access pretty much to Microsoft Excel. And you can at the very least come up with some pretty rudimentary tools yourself. There is certainly... There are these big, robust restaurants, like kind of this whole holistic software program where like from, you know, it connects with your vendors. So like when you're purchasing, you know that you're buying four boxes of avocados. And then, you know, when it tells you, oh, that it's Tuesday the 23rd. And so last week you did this number over the last six months, you've done this average on this day of the week. So like we're going to tell you to prepare two of those four cases of avocados. But some of those, those more kind of the Cadillacs, the, the, the more holistic tools uh, require a lot of input. And if your team on the ground isn't ready to really engage with these softwares and really be, you know, basically you get out what you put in, which is how a lot of things in this world work. And so there's, you know, you can do it in a rough way with just basic Microsoft Excel. But if you really want to dig deeper and really want to take to the next level, there's also much more expensive, bigger software. But for an individual restaurant or somebody's launching their first location, I really recommend, you know, you can see after really even just a few days uh, you get a sense of sort of what your demand is like and when you're your busiest and how to, from not just from a food standpoint, but from a labor standpoint as well, forecasting and modeling to meet demand. So these patterns become apparent pretty quickly is what you're saying. So yeah, before we opened the restaurant, we thought like, oh, one day we'll sell 150 burritos. The next day we'll sell 400. After that, it'll be 250. The next day it'll be 500. And like that it would be like just all that we would have no idea. Mm-hmm. But we realized pretty quickly that like within, you know, two to 5% from a, from a dollar standpoint, you can predict given the weather is a huge thing. So you can't make your forecast too far in advance because a rainy day versus a sunny day is, is you can be off 30% or more. And so, yes. People buy more on sunny days than rainy days? So it's this weird thing. Yes, 100%. It's not like people don't eat when it rains. It's like, what? where are they going? What's, you know, it's yeah. but I think people become much more hyper-local and are going to there, you know, if there's a, some kind of cafeteria in someone's office building that's not very tasty, but like, they just don't want to go outside and don't want to yeah, deal with it. Yeah. So weather, it's a big factor. So rain is a factor. The day of the week is a factor, whether it's a holiday or not. What are some of the other biggies that predict demand quite reliably? I mean, those are the biggest ones. We're, the burrito, It's a weird thing where it, it so depends on what kind of food you're serving and what kind of service style. So like for fast casual burritos, our best days of the week are, you know, a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, to a certain extent, Friday, you know, um, the middle of the week, in the middle of a normal month, like, I hate to say it, but like, people want burritos in like, just mundane, normal times. It's like, mon- so if you own a fast casual salad concept, Monday is your biggest day of the week, because people are often less healthy on the weekends, and they want to atone for their sins on Monday. And, you know, you can eat delicious, healthy salads from Dos Toros, we serve a lot of them. And we, you know, Mondays are good, but they're just not quite as good as the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then holidays are terrible for us. You know, if you have like a fine dining restaurant with like a, a private room in the back and like it's very fancy and then, you know, December and the, you know, towards around the holidays, it's like you can do you know, a quarter of your revenue for the year or more, whether it's through private parties, or private dining, or just like holiday celebrations. 
Whereas like December for us is like a disaster. It's not I don't say disaster, but like it's, you know, our worst month of the year because it's just not normal. And it's hard to take your team or your spouse out for like a celebration meal to Dos Toros. Not that we aren't delicious, but I think somebody might be like, well, I thought we were. Not that you don't recommend it, but it's not the first thing people think of around Christmas time. Exactly. So what you're saying really is that people have followed remarkably stable habits when it comes to eating. Yes. And if you're trying to build or create your own concept and trying to figure out what people are going to be like, just like look at yourself. I think so often people try to figure out what other people are going to want. And then they're like, mm-hmm. oh, no, I'm going to do this because that's mm-hmm. but but I the people are I'm different from other and like really we're all very similar, I think. And so if you just use yourself as a North Star and as you know a good guide for what people want and when they want it. Uh, you'll probably be fairly accurate. Yeah. So you love burritos, and I guess tacos as well. You didn't see them anywhere else. You went into business. You did this before. Was this the first business you ever did? Because you started right I, after college, I think. Yes. In college, I was involved with my fraternity brother. We He was the original founder. I was basically his co-founder in a off-campus housing website, helping college students find off campus housing. And I mean, it was something I was very, very, very into for several months there, you know, and at one point, I was like, I'm gonna drop out of school, internet things happening so fast, I need to like be on on board with this. And then fairly quickly, I realized that was probably a really bad idea. And that I didn't think the business was actually was that good of a business and that good of a concept. And so but essentially, yes, right out of college, I was a finance major in 2008. The job market was not awesome at that Mm -hmm. time. And so I Took a couple interviews with firms I really wasn't even interested in that I didn't get the job anyway. And uh, my brother and I had been kicking around this idea. And so we got excited about it and we got cold feet. And I kind of, we kept kind of going back and forth. And, and then eventually I was like, let's just cook. We don't really cook much at home. We don't really cook ever, in fact. That's why people were so confused. They were like, what? They're like, I know you love burritos, but like, you don't, you guys don't ever like host dinner parties or like, you're not, this is, you don't have any family history in the restaurant business. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And so I went online and I just like found a bunch of recipes for like a Mexican red rice, a guacamole recipe, a carnitas recipe. And then we basically cooked this huge feast. This is back in the summer of 2008 after I graduated from college. We invited 20 friends over and uh, we cooked for everybody. And one of my dad's friends, I'll never forget, who was, you know, from any, everyone from the Bay Area is to a certain extent a Mexican food connoisseur. And like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's like the pizza in New York or the bagel. Like they're everywhere and everyone eats them. Everyone eats it. And he finished his meal. And he was like, that was the best Mexican food I've ever had. And he said that to us. And, and I looked at my brother and I was like, huh? I was like, maybe, just maybe like we can actually do this. Like maybe we can actually wrap our heads around this and do this. And so we moved out to New York, took jobs at Taquerias for a couple months, started, you know, continued to refine our recipes, took a very scientific approach, like basically just like reverse engineering. Like here's how we want the beans to taste. Here's how we want you know, the guacamole to texturally to feel and, and to taste. And so what do we need to do to kind of get it there? And so it's just kind of one day at a time, one recipe at a yeah. time. So it's interesting because you don't have a background in culinary arts, if you will. I don't you, have a background in anything, really. And your brother as well. He's a musician, though, isn't he? Or involved in music? Yes, he was actually the bassist uh, for Third Eye Blind, which is a pretty popular band. He's not their original basis but he was there essentially their guy for several years there from roughly 2005 to 2008 i think he had a blast doing it but ultimately realized that wasn't his true calling and it wasn't his music and he's you know one i think the smartest or one of the smartest and most creative and intellectually awesome people i've ever met in my life 
and he, I think he had a great time kind of playing the rock star thing. Like he really got, he played at a, he had a band in high school and after he like, he deferred going to college so they could play with his band. They signed a big deal, the whole thing. It just never quite, they didn't quite take off. And so he got to sort of check that box by playing with Third Eye Blind for a little while. But then ultimately, again, it wasn't his music that he was playing and he was not really involved in the creative process going forward. And so it just wasn't quite simulating enough for him. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, we talked about doing this burrito thing and, you know, it's kind of, if we don't do it now, we're never going to do it. And we just sort of took the leap together back and forth. So it was just an idea, no real background other than, you know, the credentials of knowing what a good burrito tastes like, but there are probably another few million like people like that as well. Yes, but I correct on both accounts. The credentials were real. Like burritos weren't something that we like thought were pretty good and we ate sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like there's a place here in Berkeley that we went to and have gone to, you know, three or four times a week for 20 years. Like we are <laughs> a expert consumers, connoisseurs of the burrito. And so, and we didn't have a lot of questions about what we wanted this thing to look like or be like. It was just about execution. I was like, we know. We were also not the first people with this idea. Anyone that spent much time in the Bay Area that then leaves the Bay Area finds themselves terribly missing the burritos. It's just most people aren't naive and reckless enough to actually try opening a taqueria, which I, I guess we were. That's really interesting. There's a minor analogy of sorts, because you mentioned bagels, but my listeners, most of them at least know I'm Canadian and from Montreal, and Montreal has the world's best bagels by mm. a long shot, which of course all my New York friends like to fight me about. Black um, seed, right? Well, black seed is a Montreal version in New York City. And that's the black right. seed is the poppy seed, right? And the, which is, I yes, think, that's a- right. Black or white, poppy seed or sesame seed. But the way that it's made is really different. But what I'm getting at is that there have been entrepreneurs over time that have tried to reproduce the Montreal bagel in other places. And black seed bagel in New York is the closest I've ever seen outside of Montreal. In Toronto, there have been some places. And then people say it's not good. And people in New Yorkers say this also. When, when you see New York bagels being sold elsewhere, they say, well, yeah, but it's not the water in New York City. They have all these theories that are not based in any facts, no doubt. Except that very, it's not very common to see that concept successfully be translated. I mean, you could work people eat bagels everywhere, but to have that quality, both, I'm going to say for Montreal bagels in particular, maybe for New York bagels too. Yeah. But for burritos, you've demonstrated that you could do it. And it seems to me it should, that's a lot more complicated product than a simple baked item. I think people definitely talk about the water as a big thing that makes New York pizza and New York bagels and all these things where, you know, you're using so much water with the dough and the cook like it, that it really does affect the flavor. I assume the water in Montreal is excellent uh, for Montreal bagels to have the reputation that they certainly do. But I think a lot of it, we talk about something called VORB, which is V-O-R-B, which is value over replacement burrito. And like certain cities, certain places, for instance, Boston actually has a taqueria called Anna's Taqueria. I'm giving them a shout out right now. And they somehow, it's so random, are actually modeled off of the same taqueria that my brother and I grew up eating in Berkeley, California. There's a thousand taquerias here. And the one that we grew up eating happens to be the inspiration for this place in Boston, Anna's. And Anna's has something like 10 locations now, and they're having pretty good success, and they're like a cult favorite in Boston. And so, like, we are not going to open in Boston in the near term. Like, the VORB for, for Boston is so much lower than it is for New York or, you know, potentially Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia. And not to say that Montreal bagels and the New York pizza aren't so much better than what you can get elsewhere – but I think the quality of burrito that, 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 that you can find, maybe because it's a little more complicated and there are more recipes going into it, it's quote unquote like easier to screw up. 
because there's just more happening, not to belittle or, or try to oversimplify the bagel or the pizza. I wouldn't do that. But that if you can nail it and if you can get the burrito right, it's so much better than what was possible and what was available in these places that you can get more traction. Yeah, that's a new term we're going to have to add to kind of business school, the VORB, uh, the VORB metric. I borrow that from 538 from Nate Silver. That's funny. You and your brother go into business. How'd you get money to start this thing? Totally. So the first location, you know, was a little, you know, shoebox of a space off of Union Square. We were really fortunate timing wise that it was, you know, when we signed our lease, it was the spring of 2009. The real estate market was basically at its the lowest point after, you know, it, the real estate market lags the stock market and, and the, the economy, I think, a little bit. And then the financial crisis happened in late 2008. And I think by the spring of 2009, the real estate market in New York was really feeling it. And, you know, we had no experience. We had a zero track record and uh, the rents were so high leading up to the crash and they've come back so much since then. But at that moment, we were able to find a space that was really, really, really affordable, really tiny. You know, we used a very entrepreneurial, I'll call them, and very budget construction crew. We bought all secondhand equipment. So we were able to do it very affordably. And we raised that first amount to get that first one open, basically, from friends and family. And, you know, again, it's the concept was not new. It was like everyone from the Bay Area agrees that like if there's a great burrito shop in New York, it's going to do great. There's there's enough California expats in New York alone. Mm-hmm. If nobody else besides California expats visits this place, it can be successful. But you know, it was really more about execution. Can these two Jewish brothers from Berkeley that have never worked in a restaurant or have you know ever cook at home, can they be the ones to execute this vision? And our friends and family were worried. You know, they put enough faith in us. So. You know, we did it as budget, mm-hmm. as efficiently as we could. And again, people basically agreed that the concept was a good one. Okay. So how many square feet did you have? 600. 600. And no basement. So this is a while ago. So you could share how the monthly rent was. It was like 8500 a month. 8500 bucks a month for 600 square feet. I'm going to let that sink in for everyone. And that's cheap. That was a bargain compared to what that same space that, would have been a year ago. That year same space that. a year ago from that, like, you know, in 2019 was... Double or triple, you know, two and a half to three times that. Two and a half. <laughs> it's a wonder how anyone can make any money in New York when you have to pay that real estate. You have to have constant flow through. That's a whole other debate and conversation that we can get into if you'd like. But yes, the, the industry poses uh, ever new challenges and, uh, and requires more thinking. No, it's just, you know, with $15 minimum wage, which is now in place in New York, which I think is a wonderful thing. And like, I know it's a living wage or you know, closer to a living wage that, that supports our team members in such an impactful way. And then as well as increased costs regarding real estate, all, all there's a lot of ways and, and regulations that are making it more difficult to operate. And, you know, it just requires more thought and more care and more consideration in the planning of a concept and, and in how you, you know, removing waste from the system in, in all its insidious uh, forms. I take it that you were, most of your business was takeout from the beginning? Pretty much. The nature of fast casual, it's like you are the assembly lines. Like you go through the line, pay, you get your food. There are tables. You can sit at one if you'd like. Essentially, everything is takeout. And whether people want to take it home or take it to the park or sit at one of your tables, it's not like you're limited in your, how much you can sell based on how many tables you have or even really the size of your restaurant, except for uh, how that affects you know, throughput. And throughput's the big measure. What happened in that first day that you were in business? I'm sure you remember. You're up early. The doors are open. Yeah, yeah. we kept running out of tomato salsa. That was seemingly persistent for the first four or five months. Because, you know, you're, you're either getting black or pinto beans. You're getting chicken steak or pork. 
you may add guacamole, you may not, because there's an upcharge, but everybody gets tomato salsa. No matter what kind of burrito or bowl or taco you get, like you're putting salsa on it. And uh, we just couldn't quite wrap our heads around the fact that like, we need to make every box of tomatoes, we need to cut up into tomato salsa. And, and the size of our space really was, a, I think, a really important constraint because we didn't have any freezers. Everything was prepared fresh. Like we were getting deliveries five days a week because we didn't have room to store product to then have it go bad. So like there's sort of, it reinforced the freshness of the food. And, and with a space that small, you know, nobody can kind of mess around, you know, be playing around on their phone. Everyone's basically just, you can see everyone on your team when you look around your shoulder. So, so everyone was sort of in this tight focused environment where that was, you know, became very high performing and high achieving. And the first day and the first little while was, you know, like drinking from a fire as we were so slow and still it was, everything was kind of shocking and more exciting than we wanted it to be. So how did people, I mean, how'd you build the business even in the first few weeks? So, just the volume is going to be low. Word of mouth is word of mouth, but you know, even if you had a hundred people come in on day one, how many of those hundred people are going to tell they're going to come back on day two or five or 10? Right. Totally. So the location is obviously everything. I know it's cliche, but it really cannot be overstated how important location is, especially for fast casual. And, you know, I think you get into trouble thinking that you're more special than you are. And it's like, oh, our burritos are the best burritos in the world. Like people will go out of their way to, to get to find us. I'm like, yes, maybe they will one time. Maybe for people who go on a pilgrimage or a voyage across the city or, or to some other borough to try your burrito, but they won't come back unless it's super easy to get to and super convenient. And so our first location was just off the corner of Union Square in Manhattan, which, which was a really, again, would not have been available to a first-time operator at the, anything like the price it was if we hadn't found it when we did. So timing played a, a really big role. We actually were operating without a sign above our, our sign maker, like just like ran off with our deposit. And we were operating without a sign that said who are, who we were for the first like two months of operation or some a month and a half, some crazy amount of time. There's a publication called Thrillist. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Thrillist. Yes, I know Thrillist. So we know some people over at Thrillist and one of the founders is from the Bay Area and it's friends with my brother. And we told him we were opening a burrito shop and he was really excited about having a good burrito in New York. And so they gave us a write-up as basically at our opening saying, hey, the San Francisco burrito concept is going to be opening in New York. Come check it out. So I think that gave us an initial pop, which certainly helped. But really what changed everything and changed my life was we got a really amazing, kind of unbelievably favorable New York Times review in the 25 and under section, which no longer exists, $25 and under. That was on January 6, 2010. So just after two months of being open, this article came out and it was completely life-changing. I guess this writer for the New York Times had lived in the Bay Area for a number of years. And mm. at the, you know, the first month or two, we were so slow. I, you know, at that, when you're serving 150 to 250 guests a day, like you recognize everybody. Maybe that sounds like a lot of guests, but in Manhattan, you need to be doing high volume to make it make sense. And this guy who's coming four or five times, I recognize him. He finished his burrito and then he came up to the counter and he's like, listen, I'm not really supposed to tell you this, but I'm a food writer for the New York Times. And I'm going to write you guys up. And we didn't kind of do like high five. We didn't think much of it. We'd already had the thrillist thing. So we were like, oh, great. A little more press is always a good thing. We never actually had anyone waiting for us to open the restaurant before. Like we would mm-hmm. come in the morning, start preparing, and then we'd flip, walk up, flip the open close sign, like walk back. And just like my brother and I just stand around, see who's going to come in today. We, you know, who knows? It's the nature of retail. And that day the article came out. I went to flip the open close sign. And there was just 25 people, just like a crowd of people just waiting for us to open. 25 people waiting outside. Just standing outside of our restaurant. And I was like, what are you guys doing here? And like, oh, <laughs> we read the article. We want to try the burrito. And I looked at my brother and I was like, oh God. I was like, today might be different. We need to be, we need to start preparing. We need to start cooking more. And you know, that day we served over 500 people 
that Saturday, we served like 700 people. And it was pretty much just pretty crazy since then. That's the, I mean, everybody wants that type of publicity. In New York City, when the New York Times writes something about food, the whole game is different. And maybe it's that way in some other cities too. They say that in the restaurant world, there is nothing, no single press hit more powerful than a New York Times review for a New York City restaurant, period, in the world. And the section that we were reviewed in doesn't even exist anymore. Like we were just so lucky yep. for the time. You know, for books, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are probably equivalent for business books as I've written. The Wall Street Journal is probably ahead because the Wall Street Journal reviewed my one of my books and it just shot to number one so fast. And it was doing okay, but it wasn't close to number one. Uh, it's amazing. really amazing. It's really amazing. But you know, when you get a write-up like that and people are flocking there, that is really your moment of truth because you gotta, you've got to execute at a very high level because people are showing up not just to try something but the expectations they're walking in expecting to get a mind-blowingly good burrito and you got to produce it that's a hard thing yeah i talk about we talk a lot about sort of marketing as you know operations is marketing so if you nail your product you nail your offering like the marketing will take care of itself like word of mouth is so so powerful in the fast guy in any sphere and us just day in day out putting in the time and the, and the effort to really execute and to, and to serve, you know, our best burritos on a daily basis. Like that is going to be the engine of growth and of, of you know, new repeat, new guests and then building a loyal customer base. So, you know, there is a thing that I think people don't always realize, which is like the busier the restaurant is, the easier it is to operate. Mm -hmm. And busy restaurants kind of run themselves. Why? For a lot of reasons. I mean, first off, you can, you know, your demand. Like if you just know you're going to be busy, it's so much easier to plan, both from a food standpoint and a team member standpoint, how many people you're going to need, when you're going to need them. And in terms of just like imperative, it's, it's, it's kind of like there's a lot of analogies between sports and the restaurant space. And it's a lot like being on a winning sports team with a winning team culture where like everyone at, at practice is focused in the morning prep. Everyone's showing up on time, bringing a level of professionalism. And, you know, you know that you need to do X, Y and Z before 11 a.m. because at that time you're going to be slammed. And so it's the sort of this imperative that, that just it's easy to integrate new team members into. And culturally, there's just like the flywheels just spinning so strong and so fast. And so busy restaurants kind of run themselves to a certain extent. At the very beginning, it was unbelievably stressful. And that required just like extra focus and trying to just take it one day at a time and one breath at a time. But pretty soon, it was actually a blessing to be so busy. And the food is fresher, right? When I told you we have a small restaurant space. We're having to like basically refill our walk-in every single day. And so everything uh, is just kind of in it framed more positively and more, more fresh and more tasty. Yeah, it's also a statement about variability. In anything, in business, when you have a lot of variability, it's hard to plan for it. And even psychologically, I think, when there's uncertainty, people hate uncertainty. Now, in an abstract way, you avoid that variability by having very steady volume. Could be low, in which case you're out of business. Could be medium, in which case in New York City you're out of business. Mm. And could be high, in which case we're talking. That's kind of what happens, right? Yeah, um, and we made choices. We realized after we opened a few more locations, how much easier it was to operate our busy locations. And, you know, you end up spending all of your time focusing on your bad locations and your underperformers because they just need more careful, more close management. And so part of our real estate strategy was selecting more high profile, more expensive sites, even if the profitability it was going to be the same or a little bit lower, because on a volume, on a, on a gross volume basis, we would just be busier and it would be easier because we'd be busier. Yeah. How many people did you have working in that 600 square foot space? I mean, on the team, there's probably 20, 22 people at any one time. There's you know, 
anywhere between five and nine people. But in that first location, do you still have that location? Absolutely. So physically in that... We closed it during COVID and temporarily closed the doors. We are just getting ready to reopen that location, which is, you know, I think really important symbolically at our first location. And it's, you know, really kind of, it's small, but it's, it really is sort of where you get a lot of feel for it. Yeah. And I want to ask you a little bit about COVID, but I'm just trying to picture the space now, especially, or even in the early days. So five human bodies are in this space. Or, the assembly or eight. Line. Or eight. On the assembly line, you've got four, sometimes five, you know, it's fairly tight quarters, but you know, four. And then in the kitchen, you've got another four, you know, two or three on prep, somebody doing dishes, you know, somebody kind of out in the dining room and just sort of Utility. How do you actually do that in a world of COVID? I mean, what, not just for you, but for any restaurant where people are physically just very, very close together. So, I mean, obviously masks and gloves certainly help. I know that face shields are becoming a thing now. And, that, you know, frankly, demand is quite a bit lower right now. And so we don't need the same number of people to meet that demand. Mm-hmm. And so we are able to sort of make it work by staffing down some and reconfiguring things a little bit in the kitchen and on the schedule so that people aren't prepping at the same time people are cooking. And there's ways to sort of, to think about it. And, you know, it presents challenges, no doubt, but you know, they're, they work. You know, we're working through. Yeah. Do you think that fast casual, your style restaurant or your category is going to be able to recover a little bit easier from COVID? Easy is not even the right word, but let's just say compared to the bigger restaurant or the more formal dining restaurants, especially if you have the six foot requirement where you lose 75% of your capacity. I think certainly. I mean, I think about some of these sit down at these, you know, casual dining, fine dining restaurants where that are table service. And, you know, the margins were not good before all of this, even, you know, the best performing, highest grossing, highest quality restaurants, like it was, they were not making killer margins. And now having, you know, losing even 10 or 20% of your revenue makes the whole model much more complicated, especially if you're not able to renegotiate your rent with your landlord and kind of do some sort of reset where you're just paying less. I'm hearing like tables, 50% reduction in table count in a lot of restaurants right now. And I understand it. And from a distant socializing standpoint, it makes sense. But from an economic standpoint, from a, from a business feasibility standpoint, I think it presents enormous challenges that, that, I'm not totally sure how you get around. And so how many locations do you have now? We have 22 locations. 22, mostly in New York, but mostly in New York. Chicago. That's right. We have exactly we have three locations in Chicago. We have 19 in New York. We're getting ready to actually open our first suburban location in New Jersey, which is very exciting. In which town? In Florham Park. And Chicago, all of our locations are currently closed. We are waiting to get permission, get the green light to get them back open. In New York, uh, we've got five locations open, getting ready to phase them back in slowly. But, you know, in New York City, we'll return to what it was and when those, you know, on Midtown skyscrapers will be filled again. We'll, if they will be filled again, we don't have all the answers there. Yeah. And so for some of your other locations, they're, I'm going to assume, bigger than 600 square feet. To what extent do you have tables, like table service, but tables for people in these other restaurants, the other locations? Is it common? Yes, it varies tremendously. But we, you know, we have anywhere between six and fifty seats, depending on the restaurant, or even more than fifty. And you know, we're going to be removing some of the tables, creating more space for pickup shelves. Digital and pickup is more popular than ever. A lot of our restaurants have operable storefronts, so we can actually open the front windows on spring, summer, fall days, which is really nice. And I think is a big differentiator. It was a differentiator before, but it's especially a differentiator now, just getting more fresh air into the space. And I think making them more inviting for people that do want to eat in the restaurant, which, you know, we, we certainly welcome. 
but we're going to be and are in the process right now of removing certain tables to create you know the, the requirements of six feet right and in general have rents stayed the same or you've gotten relief in some places or it just depends on location it depends a lot on the location i think any landlord that isn't willing to negotiate or isn't willing to budge is not correctly grasping current realities of our situation and they will if they don't yet they will soon yeah so it's case by case but we have been largely uh, landlords have been willing to work with us and are, are being friendly now I think it was beginning of this year, beginning of 2020, that your company was acquired by the Chopped Group. Is that right? Essentially, yes. So we're acquired by slash merged with Chopped Salad to form the Founders Table Restaurant Group. That deal, yeah, we completed that at the uh, January 24th. Very fortunate timing is right. Are you still involved in running your part of the business, you and your brother? Definitely. I think, you know, we're no longer CEOs. Like we were co-CEOs of Dos Toros. Nick Marsh, who is, was the CEO of Chop Salad, is the CEO now of Founders Table and of both concepts. And so Leo and I are definitely still very involved, but, you know, no longer in the executive function. And, you know, we're sort of, you know, as a day by day and certainly, you know, COVID, the environment has changed sort of obviously with remote work and how uh, different departments are communicating. We're sort of, you know, we're, we're seeing how we fit in, but we have a really great, great relationship with Nick all the senior members of the CHOP team. And I think we've merged in a way that, that people feel really good about. And then my brother and I are still able to contribute without necessarily being in charge. Why did they make this deal? Why did they want this? I mean, there's, I think you've seen consolidation sweeping a lot of industries over the last 20, 30 years, whether it's airlines or hotels. And, and I think in the restaurant space, it makes a lot of sense for a number of reasons. You know, obviously synergies between just back office functions, whether it's accounting or HR or technology or, and then from, I think largely, I mean, scale is just a huge benefit from whether you're negotiating with your beef or avocado supplier to whether you're negotiating with a landlord. And, you know, we can put now a chopped and a dosaurus next to each other. If they'll give us X, Y, and Z, it just gives you that much more power. And then major investments in technology and, you know, building a really state-of-the-art world-class digital ordering platform, you know, CRM platform. And, you know, if you can spread the cost of these investments across more locations and more concepts, I think, you know, you can, you need to, frankly, in order to compete against the biggest players in the space. Right. Who is the biggest competitor? I mean, you know. Well, you think about Chipotle. Chipotle, but they are. And, you know, they're, that's what, when people think burritos, they think Chipotle. And, you know, we absolutely welcome and love that comparison. I think we compare very favorably with them. I think people, the things that are most popular at Chipotle are probably the things that are least Mexican, like the bowl and the salad. And, you know, we're, I think we are more authentically Mexican. I think our bowl and our salad are fantastic. But, you know, our burrito, our taco, and our quesadilla are really, really differentiated and head and shoulders better than, than Chipotle or really anyone else in the space. You know, anyone selling a fast, casual meal in, you know, the 7 to $15 range, I think of as a competitor. And so, you know, size matters and then being part of a larger entity, again, from, from just a, all the benefits of scale and, you know, having a more, I don't want to say mature, but senior leadership team with more experience. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that the timing was great because this was beginning of this year before COVID really was known, at least in, in the U.S., certainly the impact of it. But from the point of view of Chopped, they might say the opposite, that timing wasn't perfect. You know, I think like, there is going to be a viable and you know massive restaurant industry and space after this period. And to the extent that you know we were able, both sides were able to get a deal done, 
and come from a stronger position of, of just being a bigger entity. Coming out of this, you know, we can leverage our size even further and I think be uh, at an advantageous position versus if we were just the two smaller concepts operating separately. And, you know, again, we're thinking in the long term. Nothing that we do or did or anything around this deal was about the 6, 12, even 24-month time frame. So for the long term, I think we're a much more dynamic, stronger multifamily company or multi-brand concept. And so I think, you know, both sides, I feel good about where we are and where we're going. And Chop does the assembly line as well. I think all the salad places do. Yes, pretty much. Um, do you know who pioneered that idea? So I was getting at this a little earlier in the discussion. Steve Ells is the founder of Chipotle, and he was a culinary, a fine dining chef. I think he's working at Stars in San Francisco, which was, you know, one of the most famous restaurants of its age, and would eat at the mission-style taquerias at these taco, you know, the burrito shops in the mission, and fell in love with the burrito. And that, I think, is really where the assembly line, as we know it, you know, obviously there's been, uh, you know, cafeteria-style, buffet-style, you, know, you, you take your, your tray down, but like, you know, it's not dissimilar to that system. But I think Chipotle borrowed, stole, whatever you want to say, the assembly line from the mission-style taquerias, and then they really, really popularized it as they expand. And, you know, it's kind of invented fast casual as a whole segment. And now, you know, someone's the Chipotle of Indian food, the Chipotle of whatever it might be. And so that's all, I think, because of Chipotle popularizing the mission style. Similar. Right. Do you think you're going to want to do a different entrepreneurial venture down the line? It's hard to say at this point. I mean, we're really focused right now on Founders Table and on, uh, you know, getting through this current crisis and environment in, in a, the best way possible. I think, you know, I've really, really, really enjoyed and very, very lucky to have such a wonderful working relationship with my brother over the last 10 years, 10 plus years. And the idea of doing another project and doing something with him is, is tantalizing and I think makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we just, we get along, you know, people ask what it's like working, what it's been like my brother. And, you know, we, I like to say, we spend a lot of time laughing and, you know, we're not, it's not all the time. And but just to say that it's generally a collaborative, lighthearted, instructive environment where, you know, we're both trying to problem solve together. And I think we've both just got a real, real deep bedrock respect for each other's thinking and the, the point of views that we have in common as well as our differences. And so I think there's a real chance that in the future, my brother and I will do something together again. He's the older brother? He is the older brother. By how many years? By five and a quarter. Five and a quarter. So I have two older brothers. One of them is five years older. And so your friends were very close now and have been for decades, actually. But it's not that your friends in the same way you might be. You have different groups of friends. I mean, five years takes you in different school categories even. Was that the yes. case with you? Or you guys were always buddies and just day to day that you were always hanging out together? Since about, I mean, we were always fairly close since the age of kind of 18 and 13 which is when he moved out of the house. It was kind of funny when like the day he moved out of the house, we became a lot closer because mm -hmm. at that moment we had to actually like plan to hang out. We didn't just kind of run into each other mm -hmm. at the water cooler or whatever yeah. it is. And so because we had to make an effort, we both did. And from that point on, we've been close. And then, you know, I think because we both really respected each other, we trusted each other that, you know, that it would be good and fun to, and responsible to go into business together. And so really since, you know, this, the fall of 2008, We've been essentially you know, working together every day. So 2008, we're now in 2020, a dozen years. A lot of things have happened, a lot of changes. Looking back, what did you learn about yourself? Not necessarily about the business, because we talked a lot about the business. Mm. But what did you learn about who you are, or how you think, or what you like, or what you don't like for that matter? Yeah, 
I'd like to say a lot. I hope I've learned a lot about myself. And I think just so much of it is about empathy, understanding people's come from and, and how, you know, can try to respond to every given situation or moment as opposed to reacting to it. And, you know, we've been in the people business and I think I've become just a more empathetic people person over the last 12 years. And I think also just sort of realizing how little I really know and how much of what we did, you know, I think we deserve a lot of credit and I think we're awesome, but like it was so lucky in so many ways, you know, from timing to just the lack of competition, everything that happened around our, our business was, was, you know, I appreciate that, you know, a lot of things just made our lives easier. And, you know, I think trying to really have a, a sort of a first principles approach and to really just sort of with every problem I come to, everything I come to, just really try to distill it down to its core and understand, you know, what the root cause of, of, of something is. And, you know, whether that's an argument I'm getting in with a friend, like, or, you know, how to better address some issue in the workplace, whatever it might be, just really trying to, to distill things down to their core and, you know, take a first principles approach. You know, what you said is really about gratitude as well and some humility. Yeah, there's luck involved in every successful career. Sometimes a lot of luck, always something. You know, we don't get to choose our parents, which means we don't get to choose our genetic pool, whatever good stuff or maybe less good sometimes that brings to us. Mm. So yeah, luck is a big part of it. And I think it's not all of it by a long shot, but acknowledging that I think it's important. I think it keeps us, all of us, a little bit more centered on reality of the world. Indeed. One thing I was going to say was, I think a lot of them talk a lot about kind of overlearning lessons. I think, you know, if I was going to give a TED Talk, I would give a TED Talk on, on the problem of overlearning lessons and, you know, professionally in the workspace. Like I've got such a small sample size of things I've ever done. And so really trying to draw massive conclusions based on my, I think, really limited experience in the restaurant space, at being an entrepreneur, you know, you can get into trouble where you're like, oh, like, this happened this time, like I'm going to make sure that we do these things differently because now I know. And like, I'm, a, I'm really an expert now in all of these things because of my one business that I had. And so that goes back a little bit to the first principles approach I was talking about before, which is that in each you know set of problems or challenges that you're going to solve, like don't come into, you know, falling back so much on all of your experience and everything you think, you know, you know, use that and then let it guide you, but really try to take a, just from the ground up approach every problem you're trying to solve. That's pretty wise, Oliver. I've actually done quite a bit of research on that very question of experience and whether it's valuable or not valuable, and in particular, highlighting how so many of us, human nature, reach all kinds of conclusions on the basis of a sample size of one. And you don't have to Mm. be a mathematician to know that the law of large numbers doesn't kick in at one. Or two. But we think we've done something. Or two, takes too many chances. So you got to find the patterns before you get to where the math tells you. But it's something that's, you know, means you want to be alert to what's different in each situation and not believe that you've got to figure it out. I have talked to a lot of people that don't understand that lesson. I don't mean necessarily in the SIDCAST. Most do, as it turns out. But uh, and lots of other walks of life of things that I've done in consulting and other. So, yeah, I think that's... Um, you build up experience, and then you want to feel really good about it. You want to like, ha- here's all these things that I know because of what the time I've put in, the things I've done. And, you know, the more you start to fall back on these things or give them too much weight, that's when you start getting yourself into big trouble. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people said the, you know, the more that I know, the more I know what I don't know. Or exactly. That I, you know, kind of what I'm saying. Totally. So... 
Well, good. These hours fly by in conversations and it feels like it's 20 minutes and then it's an hour. So it's time to wrap up. Let me thank you again, Oliver Kramer, spending the time with me and our listeners on the SIDCAST. I think it's been a great conversation. Lots of cool lessons for a lot of people. Thank you, Sid. It's been a pleasure. It was a great time. So thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.